This episode of Jude Talking To Me was recorded under lockdown conditions. Hello, I'm Philip Simon. And I'm Rachel Krieger. We are two Jewish comedians. I'm Reform. And I'm Orthodox. And this is the chat show that recreates that sensation of finding yourself on the miscellaneous table at your cousin Hannah's bat mitzvah. It doesn't matter what the topic of conversation is, within a few minutes you're going to be talking about food. Each week we'll bring you two of our favourite Jews to talk about their lives, their experiences growing up, and how much Jewishness played a part. Are they old school or Old Testament? Welcome to Jew Talking me. So Rachel, what's the most Jewish thing that's happened to you this week? Well, we got a Tesco delivery the other night and when the driver arrived, he was really excited when he saw my husband was wearing a kippah and he started saying shalom, shalom. But then he explained that he's actually a very religious Christian who loves the Jews and loves Israel. And he's actually only working as a Tesco delivery driver to save up enough money to go to Jerusalem. And he asked me, do I have any friends or family who live there? And I told him that my parents actually live in Jerusalem and he was blown away by this exciting news and he said I really hope I get to meet them and I reckon if he turns up on their doorstep with seven crates of food they'd be very happy to meet him as well. <laughs> what about you Philip? How, how Jewish has your week been? Uh, well I got woken up by my son the other morning far too early of course because uh, he's only five uh, no guarantee he's going to reach six <laughs> but, uh, but being woken up by him that's not a new thing for me generally I don't mind too much when it happens uh though there was this time a couple of years ago when he woke me up to ask if i could play the being asleep game um yeah i just stared at him and said i was playing the being asleep game i'm i'm pretty sure i was winning the being asleep game actually uh i, I forgave him that one and we kept him but <laughs> he woke me up this week holding a tower of Lego bricks with numbers on. And he told me to order what I wanted for breakfast by picking one of the numbers. So I contained my exhaustion and randomly chose, I don't know, like, like number seven, I think it was. And he told me I couldn't have that as it was pork and we don't have pork in the house. I was like, why would you put something on the menu I'm not allowed to have? What, what kind of restaurant is this? And then I realized it's actually a very kosher restaurant oh that's so cute that's really gorgeous but you know this show isn't just about us and it is time to introduce our guests our first guest is the chairman of elstree studios he's a broadcaster a member of bafta he's written numerous books about classic british television programs and films he is morris bright mba good evening shalom i've been practicing that all week <laughs> <laughs> ever since you turned up with a crate of food on my doorstep um yeah, no wonder food doesn't get delivered here in, from Tesco's because they're too busy yackling away at your house. <laughs> so, Maurice, what kind of Jew are you? I think I'm lapsed, um, um, but less fearful, but very traditional. And I say oh, yeah. that because when we grew up, it was all the case of, well, you must do this and you must do that because if you don't, this will happen. So I used to do it even until very recently, and then I didn't and nothing happened. But for the children, very traditional, like the festivals, enjoy that they enjoy it and show them the way and they can make their own decisions later on. And how Jewish has your week been, Morris? It's a bit odd for me. Um, I'm also the leader of the local uh, borough council, the local authority, and Hartsmere has one of the highest Jewish populations in the country. So it's always very busy and I go down to the deli and because people tend to know of my relationship with the council, um, people will stop me and ask me if they know what's going on with the COVID lockdown and the epidemic and when the road barriers are going up and what's going on with quarantine, etc. It can be a little bit imposing and it was this week but I try and keep people happy and feeling safe. I don't want to upset you but as a resident of Hartsmere the reason we brought you here tonight actually there's no show. What's going on? <laughs> don't worry I know, I know where you live and I know what you put in your bins so don't try it on me. <laughs> 
I mean, that sounds like a show in and of itself, to be honest. Yes. <laughs> What's in the mind the keyhole, lifting the lids. Now, it's time to bring on our second guest. He's a BAFTA-nominated writer and author who created sitcoms, including May to December, So Haunt Me, and my hero It's Paul A. Mendelssohn. Nice to see you, Philip. Nice to see you, Rachel, and thank you for inviting me. Now, lovely to have you here. And I'm going to ask you the same question that I put to Morris. What kind of Jew are you, Paul? Well, I'm officially reform, and Philip knows, because we were at the same synagogue, the one that I still go to, but not very often. But I was brought up united, and my background, funny enough, is a lot more religious than I am, in in that I think my father's uncle started the Sonsino Press. Oh, wow. Which is quite something, isn't it? A long time ago, I think they were the first people to publish the Talmud in full in English, but it Mm. sort of hasn't rubbed off, basically. But I find more and more now that everything I do or think or say is probably informed by being Jewish. Right. Uh, okay. In that sense, probably a lot more Jewish even than I think I am. See those books behind me? Mm. All Sonsino. <laughs> the royalties will be staggering. I think they sold it to some people, a family called Block or something. I think who would be, you know, I, this was a long time, well, before I was born. Yeah. So I can't claim much credit for Sonsino Press then. <laughs> and Paul, how Jewish has your week been? We realised that the, the latest Woody Allen film is on Amazon, I think, a rainy day in, in New York. And uh, I thought, well, I'll see what the reviews are like. And the reviews were uniformly awful, except for the Jewish Chronicle that really liked it. And I thought, well, the Jewish Chronicle has always been very nice about my stuff, so I'll take their word for it. And we watched it. It was okay. It wasn't great, but it was watchable and the performances were good. So uh, thank you, Jewish Chronicle. So that was, I mean, how Jewish is that? I think saying, hey, it was okay. It wasn't great. It was watchable. That sounded very Jewish to me. Well, do you remember the days when the Jewish Chronicle used to give film reviews and they would ignore the stars and say a wonderful cameo performance by some tiny unknown Jewish actor? (laughs) you know got out of a taxi that was how they used now they're a quite respectable um critical force watch it lovely some lovely little performances yeah watch it for the little performances wonderful cameo by uh (laughs) (laughs) he's my cousin he's he's in everything things are challenging at the moment so we always like to start off by checking in with our guests so i'm going to actually start with you paul and ask you what's the matter bubbler i think i've probably been hacked by the russian you know that the, everybody's going to do the bit for, for for the coronavirus and and i thought well i'll try and think of a treatment There's, there must be a spectrum there's a spectrum between things that'll kill you which is on the trump edge of the spectrum which is you know the malaria drug or drinking bleach and there's things at the the far end, the good end of the spectrum, which is like the Oxford vaccine. And I think I could create something in the middle, which is like the chicken soup solution, which may not help, but it wouldn't kill you. And I thought <laughs> of that, but I think that, that there's a, a bunch of hackers in, in, in Moscow. I think they're called the Alta hackers. And, um, <laughs> and I've got a feeling that they may have taken my particular treatment for COVID. So if you, if you see any newsreels, from Moscow, and there are lots of people with hummus around their face, then they've got it. If they've got hummus around their face, they're making chicken soup in a really weird way. No, no, no. Chicken soup is the is, is the classification. It's the category of, thi- oh. of, of, of treatments that wouldn't wouldn't help but wouldn't hurt. I mean, it's like that old old joke when, um, when somebody's doing a eulogy over a member of the community who died, and somebody shouts from the congregation, Mr. Given some chicken soup. And she says, Madam, I don't think that would help now. She said, it wouldn't hurt. 
<laughs> my secret ingredient is hummus. But this is this is only between the four of us. What was the leap that made you think it was the Russians that have got involved? Because of this group called the Alta Hackers, who I think are a well-known old Jewish-Russian uh, band of uh, computer hackers and the fact that hummus is such a potent force for good that I think I'd be <laughs> surprised if they didn't get hold of it. And Morris, what about you, Bubala? How are you doing? Uh, well, look, uh, I need a bit of counselling. I haven't been out a great deal recently. I haven't worn, well, I've only worn trousers three times in the last four months. I think I've got Stockholm syndrome, to be perfectly honest with you. Because um, actually, I'm quite happy to be at home now. I've started growing fruit and vegetables. Right? I'm doing all right. It's a bit like, it's become like the good life here, except, well, I've got no barber here, but some Tom Good on my own at the moment. My son has resumed visits to his girlfriend who lives in Stanmore, and I know I'm staying overnight. I, something to do with the bubble. I haven't quite worked out what it is, bursting it, whatever. But anyway, so he's over there and he says to me, Dad, she's asked, when can she come and stay over here? I said, no, not happening. I said, not until there's a vaccine. Not because I'm worried about I'm going to catch it now, but because, to be honest with you, I'm just quite happy to be on my own. I think you had Lady Havisham, didn't you, in Great Expectations. I'm becoming Lord Havisham. You're appreciating your me time. And it's great. I've got these apps, you see. I've got an app now that tells me what plants you just take a picture of it and it tells you exactly what the plant is and what the tree is and we lived in this house for 10 years and it had lovely gardens and i, I don't really understand what this water stuff etc so i could take a snap and it tells me exactly what the picture is i really enjoyed being back at nature i've never had this before you hear the birds which you didn't used to to hear because of the aircraft and whatever so yeah that's been a lovely, a lovely bonus, I think. I don't think it's a secret that um, Russell, our producer, and I live in the same street. We're quite far apart, but the house in the middle have got chickens, and I've never heard anything like these chickens. They are so loud. You can hear them all the time. Not just in the morning, not like at dawn. They just make a racket. I think that's because you keep talking about chicken soup, and this is their way of making sure they stay alive, because they know now that if, if there's silence, there'll be an investigation. <laughs> My grandkids' favourite jokes is that, as I said, there was a family who, who bred chickens and they, everybody loved chicken legs. And so they bred chickens that had six legs. And my grandson said, that's fantastic. Is it not really? Because they couldn't catch them. <laughs> that was always my dad's favourite joke, telling that. He would he would turn it into one of the longest jokes about how someone was chasing this chicken down the motorway, trying to find out and turn into a farm. And I'm so glad yours is a much more concise <laughs> version. Yeah, they have no spans <laughs> my grandchildren. And also he's worked in television, right? He writes for TV. He's got certain, he's got to hit the points, you know? Whereas my dad, the accountant, knows how to bill by the hour. We always like to check in with our guests and say, have you eaten yet? But we also would like to know about some of your earlier Jewish food memories. Paul? It's not that long ago. When I was in advertising, I used to do a lot of freelance radio work, writing radio commissions. The guy who gave me all my work, I said, you and your wife must come round for dinner. They were Jewish. Well, still are. And they said, yes, we'd love to come for dinner, but can we have an ethnic meal? So I thought, fine. So I thought, oh my God, I went back to my wife and said, well, what do Jews eat? So we thought, well, we'll give them everything. We have chopped liver, chicken soup with knedlach, and, and there'll be chicken, and there'll be latkes, and there'll be lakshan kugel. I mean, everything except my mother coming around and saying, eat, eat, and you eat like a bird. Anyway, we had the whole thing, and it was it was, it was was massive. And then they phoned at the last minute, said, sorry, we've got flu, we can't come. And so the other guests came, but they were all Jewish. And they said, what the hell is this? Why are you giving us chopped liver and chicken soup? So we had to explain it was because uh, 
Somebody had asked for anything, but it was like nothing they'd ever eaten ever. In my old job, I invited a load of colleagues over for a meal and on Sukkot in our sukkah, the little shed with leaves on top we eat in at a certain Jewish holiday. And uh, I thought it would be a nice thing to do. And they asked also for an ethnic meal. So I made uh, chopped liver and egg and onion for the first course. And then we had chicken soup with knadles and lokshan, like the full works for the second course. And then we had roast chicken with kugel and red cabbage and uh, simmers and all these amazing things. And then we ended up with a strudel, just telling you. And uh, at the end of the meal, one of my colleagues said to me, Rachel, I hope you don't mind if I ask you a religious question. I said, no, not at all. I asked me whatever you want. And he said, is chicken a holy animal to the Jews? And I said, why are you asking? And he said, because we've had it for three courses. You know, the first course was chicken liver. The second course was chicken soup. The third course was chicken and other things. And I thought it must be very holy. And I said, no, it's MasterChef. You've had chicken three ways. Textures of chicken. <laughs> you did explain to him that the canadals are not chicken's balls. They're not balls. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> and Morris, how about you? Do you have a particularly fond memory of any Jewish food? It's the smells that you came down to on a on a Sabbath morning, on a Saturday morning, before you went, before I was forced to go to the synagogue, he says a bit belligerently, but before you went to the synagogue, I come from an Orthodox background, so anything that had to be cooked would be on the stove or in the oven on a very low light before the Shabbat came in uh, on the Friday afternoon, evening. And so it'd be the smell of the cholumps, the, the, the stew, or particularly my mum's kugel, potato kugel, potato pancake cake, as it were. And it was the morning of my bar mitzvah, so I was obviously just hit 13, so we're talking over 40 years ago. And it's uh, 6.30 on the Sabbath morning. I'm up, I'm a little bit anxious. And we had a hundred people that were going to come for lunch afterwards, assuming I hadn't embarrassed myself and run away. And mum said, what do you want to have? You've got to have something before you go to shul. I said, can I have a little bit of your kugel? And she looked at me, she said, you can. And she served me up a little portion, a little bit there with a bit of tomato ketchup. And I had it there with some with some drink and some squash. And you know what? It made me feel really good. And I remember the smell from that particular morning and the taste from that particular day across 40 years. And I still use my late mother's recipe. Can never make it quite as good as her, but I still make kugel uh, most weeks. And if not, I have to go to the deli and find the one out of the several that they have it's nearest to hers, but um, that's my fondest memory. But when you buy a shop-bought kugel, does everyone in your family agree that that is the closest to your mum's recipe? Or are there like lots of arguments about it? Because I don't talk to most of my family, right? The people that are actually <laughs> there are my, are my children, right? And so uh, my 10-year-old son and my 23-year-old son and my 20-year-old daughter, um, only the top two remember Bubba's Kugel anyway. And they always say, eh, almost as good as Bubba's Kugel, almost as good. My 10-year-old just said it's the best one he's ever had because it's really kind of the only one that's ever had. I've actually got two sons. I told you my 23-year-old son and my 10-year-old son. They're actually two firstborn sons from two different women, and they both had the same birthday. And wow. Some, yeah, and that, so we had to do the redemption of the firstborn. We had to do it twice not five pieces of silver, that's 10 pieces. I thought, take them to the temple. I can't be doing with it. But anyway, so I redeemed them both. And the rabbi said to me, rabbi said, what are the chances? He said, what are the chances? You have two firstborn sons from two different uh, women on the same birthday. I said, it's quite high in my case because I only do it once a year. <laughs> <laughs> and it's sadly true. <laughs> why, why are you laughing? It's true. 
just going back to your story about kugels for a minute because in my family if you made a kugel and it didn't taste exactly the same as somebody else's it would cause debates that would go on and on in fact if anyone heard that you had kugel for breakfast that could spark a debate i'm sure morris have you got any family feuds that you would be willing to share with us today <laughs> not that i like to share but since we're my friends um <laughs> it was an odd thing i mean obviously i my, my grandfather is worth me starting this by saying my late grandfather oliver Shollum. That wasn't his name, Oliver. No, my great grandfather, after I'm whom I'm named, actually, Morris, was the Jewish mayor of Hackney, Labour mayor of Hackney, 1959. And then my father became a Jewish councillor on Hackney and he became a liberal and I was a child of the 70s and I became a Jewish councillor uh, for the Conservatives. But that's now. But in those days, when I was young and full of passion and I was a politics student and it was 1983 and I went to a big campaign rally at Wembley and I brought back this picture, this, this big image of Margaret Thatcher. Now, my father, at the front of the house in the window downstairs, had put a big picture of the liberal chap. And me being a bit, you know, what I was like, I went up the stairs and I put my picture of Maggie Thatcher on my window overlooking the street above it upstairs. Dad comes home and he says to me, what's that picture doing there? And I say, Dad, 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 we live in a democracy. He said, listen to me, son. He said, we may live in an effing democracy. He said, but while you're living in my effing house and I'm paying the effing bills, you can take that effing picture down. And I learned a lesson that day. We were, there was a Bruegels for a while. And but my sister, my older sister, who's getting married after about six weeks, said, if you and dad don't start talking to before my wedding, I will never forgive you. So we kind of made peace. But um, we, we were a bit touchy in our family about that type of thing. Paul, what about you? Any interesting Bruegels in your family? No, my parents were very sort of mild mannered and very nice and good fun. And my grandparents, the the only argument I ever remember having with my with my grandmother was years ago when Winston Churchill died, and I was only little. She said, "You know, he was Jewish," and so I said, "But, but grandmother, he was buried in Bladen Churchyard," and she said, "Ah, they didn't want people to know he was Jewish." <laughs> and, so, yeah. and I said, I'm sure he's not Jewish. And she, got, she got really upset that her grandson should suggest that the you know the the leader of the free world and the savior of the was wasn't Jewish. Now, we know you are both very well connected in the world of entertainment, but if you think about your six degrees of Kanti bacon, who is your most interesting Jewish connection? Morris. Yes, it's not time for name dropping, so I'm not going to name drop doing an exclusive interview with Kirk Douglas back in London in 1995, because it's not about that. As far <laughs> as the most... No, no, I'm not going to. And then, of course, Paul Mendelssohn is in very close second place, because he wrote some sitcoms, <laughs> which I still adore to this day. Um, who was it? Well, you've all have heard of the Carry On films. So they were the longest running series of film comedies in the world. There was 30 of them between 1958 and 1978. They did another one in 1992. They tried to reboot it with Carry On Columbus, or as Jim Whitfield said to me, should have been called Carry Off Columbus. But anyway, so there was this long running series of films which people still enjoy and watch, etc. But the first six were written by a Jewish writer, a former PR chap for the rank organization called Norman Hudis. And Norman Hudis is a wonderful man, and he wrote these comedies, and then he went across to America in the 60s, and he wrote for Marcus Well, BMD, and The Man from Uncle, and so on. And his wife, Rita, was a, a nurse, and she became a medical consultant on MASH, which was obviously a huge American sitcom mm -hmm. uh, of its time. Norman became a great friend of mine. And as what I noticed was, and Rita wasn't Jewish, but what I noticed, as he got much, much later in his life, he seemed to 
want to come back to his roots and talk about his roots more and talk about Judaism again and being Jewish again. And he only passed away a couple of years ago and he was, he was 93. But I remember going with him to the funeral of a film producer called Betty Box. And Betty Box made lots of films, Doctor Films, Tale of Two Cities and so on. Made a big name out of Dirk Bogard. So we went to this funeral, but it was at a crematorium. Now, I'd never been to a crematorium before at that stage because most Jewish people are buried um, and tend not to um, be cremated. So I hadn't been before. I didn't know what the protocol was. So I drove him and Joan Sims, the late actress, to Amersham Crematorium January day, drizzling, very cold. We get inside, and in the background, there's the music playing to Brief Encounter. It was a theme from Brief Encounter. So I was all <laughs> done up like this, and I turned around to Norman. I said, Norman, he said, what? I said, is it coats off? And he said, no, I think it's Rachmaninoff. And everyone <laughs> was just the biggest. Joan Sims had a laugh like a cannon going off. It was probably the funniest, happiest times. He was a lovely man. Um, he was a lovely Jewish guy who really came back to his roots in his later years. And someone I cherish, and not a name you necessarily know. His children are in the business as well, stuntmen and other stuff. And I always think of him very affectionately because he brought a lot of joy and laughter to my life. And so, uh, yeah, he's someone Jewish that I really, I really admired. Verity Lambert, who produced my, my first two series, who was, was Jewish, and she was the original producer of Doctor Who. And for her cremation at the Gilders Green, the coffin went through to the Doctor Who theme. That's amazing. It was it was sort of surreal. Was Verity's coffin bigger on the inside? <laughs> it was, it was, yeah, there was like a swimming pool and there was the, you know, <laughs> endless thing. Yeah. Paul, how about you? The, the person I can think of, um, the Jewish person who I worked with, was Miriam Carlin, who you probably know oh. of the rag trade. And also she was beaten to death by um, Malcolm McDowell, I think, and what is his droogs in, in Kubrick's Clockwork Orange. But she became a, a good friend. She was the she was the star of my of my comedy, So Haunt Me, playing a Jewish ghost who haunts a house. And she was called Yetta, which was after my mother, who was also called Yetta. And so they became good friends and Miriam would come round to the house for dinner and meet and with my kids. And she became a good friend of the family. She was a lovely lady. But interestingly, once um, she was interviewed for, well, I think when the third series was about to go out, and she did say that I had received via the BBC some letters from people all over the country saying that they themselves had, had evidence of Jewish ghosts, little bits of chopped liver on the pillow and various smells of chicken soup. And these letters had come to the BBC from all over the country. And then the Daily Mirror phoned me up and said, we hear that you know the, there have been letters of people who said they've got Jewish ghosts. And I said, well, apparently. So they said, that's a lovely story. We do a story on that. So I said, yes. Anyway, I was one night my, my, with my daughters and my, and my mother and, and, and my wife, and I was telling them the story. And my eldest daughter and my mother burst out laughing. They had got friends from all over the country to write to the BBC, writing this garbage about people who've had Jewish ghosts. And it was totally yeah. So I had to phone the Daily Mirror and say, look, this is a hoax. It's not true. They said, that's a much better story. And they printed the story. <laughs> but anyway, Miriam Carlin was probably, and she was a, she was a great actress and, 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 and a wonderful friend, a, a lovely, lovely lady. Just died uh, two or three years ago Miriam Carlin has a connection with me as well, because when I was a lowly drama student, I would write to a lot of actors to try and scrounge a little bit of money here and there. And she was one of the ones who not only replied, but also did actually give me a small amount of money towards my education. She made it very clear in the letter that she sent me that this wasn't towards my education, but this was to cover the postage of all the letters that I'd been sending. Oh, bless her. <laughs> it was such a lovely, and then, and then yeah. each year I would send like a, 
an annual update to the few sponsors that I'd had, because they're probably about five or six in total. And she once sent me a really lovely letter, effectively telling me to leave her alone because it was a waste of, a waste of my time sending the update. It was a waste of her time deciding whether to reply or not reply. But it was such a sweet, lovely. It didn't. It didn't come from a horrible place. No, no, it, no. it was she really very clever, very very left wing, very politically active. She was very involved in the anti-Nazi league. She was, mm. I think, she, she was um, a hugely committed lady. She was very. She was also a, a senior officer at Equity, the Actors Union, yeah. as well. I believe. I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. I think she. I think she was, and she used to sit at our table with our young daughters and talk about the cocaine trip she'd had in the sixties, which didn't, we had to try and calm her down a little bit from that. So you two must go down well at any kind of social gathering with all of these show-busy anecdotes. We will do from now on, yes. We're going to join up. Uh, Mendelssohn and Morris. Morris and Mendelssohn, I don't mind. Morris and Mendelssohn. We definitely will use you to sue somebody. (laughs) I'm curious to know whether either of you have a particular party trick that you trot out. Like, is there something that you're secretly a maven of, that you're an expert in that other people don't realise? Paul, what about you? Years ago, we went to some very close friend's house and another couple there were the journalist Melanie Phillips and Joshua Rosenberg her husband who were were very nice and very very clever and very intelligent people and my only contribution was to show them how you could take the wrapper of an amaretto sweetie and make it into like a little cylinder and set fire to it and it goes up like a Chinese lantern and looks absolutely amazing and I did that quite a few times and they were quite impressed not with my intellect but with my ability to set fire to amaretto wrappers so (laughs) that's my particular skill and I've always remembered that. Paul I'm a bit disappointed that you haven't bought an amaretto biscuit or sweetie to do that for us now that would have been exciting. That would have been exciting can't afford them these days you know (laughs) times are hard (laughs) and uh morris what about you what is your party trick when i was eight it was my older brother's mitzvah, and obviously like most children i was a little bit sort of jealous of him getting all the attention i had a lovely uncle called uncle morris i think he may have been a second or third cousin but we called him uncle morris anyway and in order for him to um distract my attention from what was going on he introduced me to a trick a, a trick with a coin um, and it's a, it's a very basic disappearing coin trick. This, by the way, is a threepenny bit, right? Only because I just love rhyming slang. So I've got, I've got, I've got, I've got two threepenny bits here. But anyway, so as far as the trick is concerned, and he taught me this when I was eight, and I've not done it, and it might not work. In which case, I do apologise. And basically, it's that old "which hand is it in" trick. So you go like this, and you go, "Which hand is it in?" And everyone says this one, but actually it's disappeared. And then he does the old coming out the ear, and it's. And it's kind of there. As you get older, you do coming out the nose because children think that's funny. But that's basically the only, only thing I can do. Look, there you go. And it's gone. Look at that. There is something particularly special about watching a sleight of hand magic trick where the hand moves off camera before you're able to. <laughs> and I've got two. It's brilliant, isn't it? It's really clever. <laughs> We have talked a lot about Jewishness, but we want to know what is the most Jewish thing about each of you. So, Morris, what's the most Jewish thing about you? My hypochondria. I, I, no, really, what well, you know, old joke about you go to the doctor and he says, I haven't seen you for a while. I said, I know I haven't been well. It's an old Tommy Cooper yeah. joke, but but, it, but it's true. And um, 
it's it's quite ironic because for all the hypochondria, I've only ever spent one night in hospital since I was eight. I think it was grumbling appendix when I was 20. But I did, did get very anxious. And so if one of the children got sort of itches, nits or whatever at school, even though I didn't have it, I'd start itching. And if they bought, I bought a box set of House years ago, I watched three episodes with my wife. and We had to start watching it. I said, I think I've, I've got that. I've got symptoms. I've got headaches like that. Just, just do me a favor. Just stop watching it. So, yeah, I think I'm sorry, but I think it's my hypochondria. When the news came out about coronavirus, did you start suffering <laughs> phantom symptoms? No, that's no, because, well, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I flew back from Spain on a plane uh, and it was late February. It was half term week. Right. And I did start to feel a little odd for a couple of days afterwards, okay? And for a few days, I was short breath, this, that, and the other, and I felt really, really quite odd. So I may have been, it may have just been psychosomatic, but I felt I might have done it. It's been going back for years. I mean, I was at boarding school. I was Jewish boarding school. I went to Carmel College. And the whole family were like this. So I used to get my 10 pence a week to phone my parents say hello how are you and I say hi mum she said hello darling how are you I said I'm not feeling so well mum I'm quite tired I've got a bit of a cold and I feel a bit under the weather and she would say yeah I know darling we all have whatever I had oh I fell over in sport today and I really grazed my leg I know darling we all have <laughs> seriously everything you know leg got sawn off in an accident I know darling so in the end I stopped calling them and spent the money on sweets but I think it's just something that was always there but I may I may have may not have had it I've not had the test yet but um don't be surprised because you'll be laughing on the other side of your face if you find out that actually I've got the antibodies that you need Paul how about you what is the most Jewish thing about you well I think instinctively I want to say immediately back what's the most Jewish thing about you then <laughs> And, and that's that's probably the most Jewish thing about me is, is answering a question with a question. But when Boris was talking about Carmel College a long time ago, I used to I used to belong to an organisation called Jives, which doesn't exist, I think, anymore. Jewish Youth Voluntary Service, and we went to Carmel College for a week as part of something called the Leadership Game, which is where we were taught how to act together and to be in committees together or to work together. And I remember sitting at the table about eight of us. We were all about eighteen years old. And there was a guy who I think was the lecturer from a university and he was the moderator. He was he was leading the discussion. It wasn't Jewish. And the discussion started and he said, hang on, hang on. What are you doing? What are you doing? And he looked quite panicky. So so we all stopped. He said, what do you mean? What are we doing? He says, you are all talking at exactly the same time. And we said all at the same time, what do you mean we're talking all at the same time? And we realized that our speech rhythms were totally, totally different to the speech rhythms of people who weren't from our community. We all talked at the same time, but we all listened at the same time, what everybody else was saying, and we're all determined to get our voice heard. And that made me realize that, that actually the way we talk, probably the way we're even we're talking now, the way we talk is, is so instinctive to us and so different from speech rhythms of, of possibly other people, maybe not Italians or, or, or Spanish, but certainly maybe maybe less like in uh, everyday English society when, when people are possibly polite and let each other finish a sentence. So I'm guessing that's the most Jewish thing about me. I talk with other people are talking. Am I making this up or does that resonate with you as well? Absolutely, 100%. It's also the fact of it not being rude. Like for people who haven't experienced that before, unless you explain it to them, they don't realise that there's nothing rude. It's not, I mean, I guess there's, a, there's an element of competition about it. But it's not offensive. Yeah. And fighting for attention is maybe possibly something historic. Maybe we had to do it as well. My grandmother was one of 12 or 13 children. Um, yeah. And so that maybe the only, maybe the loudest got heard. So maybe that's just something that we had as families. Yes, that's very interesting. That makes perfect sense. Yes. Paul, have you found that writing dialogue for sitcoms and other things might have been affected by that? 
sort of when you were writing Yetta Feldman, for instance, was there a Jewish rhythm you wanted to put into her voice? Well, that wasn't a problem. I think it's probably the problem is I put a Jewish rhythm into everybody's voice. <laughs> and, you know, even, even with, well, I mean, what did say with May to December, who are the least Jewish people you can, I think <laughs> I have to try and stop myself. But the interesting thing is we did 41 episodes of May to December. In every single one, we had a scene where people had coffee and cake. Yeah. <laughs> we had a different director once and he said, what are they doing? So I said, well, Alec and Zoe are having people around and they're not having them for dinner. If they're not having them for dinner that night, they have them around for coffee and cake. Of he said, who the hell does that? So I said, well, what do we do? He said, well, can you not change it to them having a drink and some peanuts? I said, no, they're having coffee and cake. And the actors loved it because there was always a bit of cake left in the green room afterwards to eat. My background before comedy was in theatre. I was a playwright and a director. And a reviewer wrote about me. You can see Krieger's hand in this show because there are biscuits in it, as there are in every one of her productions. <laughs> it's instinctive. If people are together, they eat. I find that really interesting because I, as an actor and a comedian and a writer at times, I get very frustrated frustrated with what I perceive as this idea there's no such thing as a Jewish sitcom but maybe there are elements of sitcoms that are Jewish because even Friday Night Dinner which is probably the most Jewish sitcom at the moment is really it's about a secular family that happened to get together on a Friday night it could be called Sunday lunch it just happens to be they come together as a family um, grandma's house was about a, a Jewish family but again there wasn't much overt Jewishness uh, so haunt me probably felt like one of the most because we had this Jewish grandmother who chokes on a chicken bone and so maybe it's not that there isn't a Jewish sitcom out there but there are elements of Jewishness dropped into sitcoms all along the way the Americans I mean yeah. because maybe all the writers are Jewish all their sitcoms they never mention being Jewish I just I don't think Seinfeld ever mentions being Jewish I don't think Rhoda yeah. in the old days ever mentioned being Jewish but they all were I think it goes back to the rhythm of words and, and, and the music in the words and the way they're written and so many American sitcoms if you listen to them there's just a rhythm there that is attractive to people that makes good humour we might want to claim it for ourselves but I mean it's just part of the fact that so many writers, particularly in the American way of writing sitcoms, are, are Jewish. And so they hear that, but they also hear the voices of the character. They create the characters as well. In America, white supremacists are probably sitting down and watching Jewish sitcom and they don't know it. So for Jewish people, the rhythm method means something completely different, does it? And... It's something totally different. And it always leads to a broigus. That's almost all we've got time for, but how are we going to know where to find you if you never call and you don't write? We normally allocate you 20 seconds for this, but for you, 30. Morris. Well, I've taken to this uh, social media thing. Uh, I've got quite a few followers now. If you'd like to join me, please do so on uh, Twitter handle, uh, which is at, and then it's Morris, a capital M, double O-R-I-S, double underscore bright, B-R-I-G-H-T, because apparently there was a Morris single underscore bright. At the time, <laughs> which I didn't even know about. Um, but if you want to, it'd be lovely to hear from you. And Paul, what about you? Well, over the past few years, I've I've become a novelist, so it would be really nice if people had a look at my my novels. I have to say that there is a novelist called Paul Mendelssohn, who was a very good crime writer, but I'm not him. Nobody dies in my books, so I'm Paul A. Mendelssohn, and you can find my novels. There's three for adults and two for children on Amazon, and my website is www.paulmendelssohn.net. And on Facebook, you can look at me at by Paul A. Mendelssohn, or you can check out some DVDs of my series in Amazon under the same name. And I've got a new novel 
must have GSOH coming out in February next year. Well, I've absolutely loved having this chat. And now we'll always think of Morris as the Jew who doesn't like to remind people he once interviewed Kirk Douglas and Paul as the Jew with dubious Russian connections. As my grandfather used to say, I loved seeing your smiling faces arrive and I'm going to love seeing your little tuchuses leave. And we've come to the end of our show. So all that remains is to thank our fabulous guests, Paul A. Mendelssohn and Maurice Bright. Follow them on social media. Follow us on social media at Jew Talking without the G. And join us next time on Jew Talking to Me. Jew Talking to Me was hosted by me, Rachel Krieger. And me, Philip Simon. And it was produced by Russell Bolkin. Wait, what's that in my ear? Is that a thrippany bit? Uh, Morris. Oi. What's the matter, Bubbala? Well, that's it. We've come to the end of the series. Well, it'd be good for us to have a bit of a break. Rosh Hashanah's coming up. And we'll be back in a few weeks. New Jewish year, new guests, new shows. I guess. And it's been a lot of fun. That's true. Right, so thanks to all of you for watching, listening and sharing our first series. Join us in Series 2, where our guests will include Valerie Landsberg, Boyd Hilton, Simon Lipkin, Jess Robinson, Vivian Goldman, a cuddly toy, Toby Mott, Alu Bell, Steve Jameson, Adam Bloom, a speedboat, Dave Cohen, Matt Kirshen and Lucy Pohl. Keep up with all the latest news by following us on social media at Jew Talking Without the G. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Make our mothers proud. And join us in October for Series 2 of Jude Talking to Me.